0: And so I wanted to introduce the series by sharing a little bit about myself and my testimony and uh, my wife and our family and kind of how we got here. And my testimony bleeds into, leads into the topic that we will be studying. The, The main topic that we're going to be studying for the next few weeks is, I call it the anatomy of the soul and it is a study a biblical theological study which it's a study of the emotions in the bible what is what what do emotions in us supposed to look like so each i'll take four different emotions and we will look at god's experience of that emotion first because god is an emotional god one of the earliest things we learn about our god is that he has and he has a deep emotional life and that can sound a little heretical, if you can take it wrong, because the Westminster Confession says that our God is without passions, right? And we'll get into that. We'll talk a little bit about that, and I'll explain what I mean by all that. But first, what we'll do is we'll look at this at each of these four emotions uh, from God's perspective as God experiences them, as the ideal experience of an emotion. And then we'll go and look at a passage, uh, most of them from the Psalms, a couple from Proverbs, that unpack how we are supposed to experience that emotion and what the purpose of that emotion is. And so the passage that I want you to flip to, that, I wanted, that I'll look at today as I share my testimony, a little bit about myself, is John chapter 2. So a little bit about me. I grew up in the bustling metropolis of Portland, Tennessee. It is on the Kentucky border. It's the last stop in Tennessee before you get to Kentucky on 65. We have a red light. Well, my wife corrected me earlier. We have two red lights now, and a McDonald's and Arby's if you fancy. Um, That's, oh, and there's a Taco Bell if you're not. Um, So, it's a real small town, real country churches. My parents were believe, became believers when, I, when my brothers and I were very small. I've got an older brother, younger brother. I'm a middle child, yes, and all that comes along with that. Um, and so we grew up in church. Every Sunday, every Wednesday, Sunday morning, Sunday evening. And... Um, I did the typical as little Baptist churches, so it's around seven years old. I walked the aisle, got baptized, did the whole thing, and became a perfect little Pharisee. I, my, if you, my my younger brother, who is who can get away with asking these sorts of questions, asked my mom once, which one of us was your favorite? You know that, that impetuous little brother kind of attitude. And he and my mom said, I can't answer that. You know, I can't say who's, you know, and she and she's and So he given her a hard time, you know, goes, oh, you just can't answer it. You know who it is, but you just can't answer it. She's like, you know what I mean? And he goes, OK, OK, let me rephrase the question. Which one of us did you like the best? Which one of us was the easiest to deal with? And without hesitation, my mom goes, Chad, all day long. Part of that was, well, the majority of that was because after I walked the aisle, became a believer, confessed Christ, my understanding of the Bible and my relationship with God was the better I was at being obedient, the better I was at knowing the Bible, like doing the sword drills. I did all the sword drills. I did all the huge Bible memorization. I did all this big stuff. I was like... I'm going to be the best, and God's going to be pleased with me because I'm really good. And that was my understanding of the gospel. And so, it's, it's, to have a little Pharisee, raising a Pharisee is easy, you know. It's, um, but it's not enough. And so, at about the age of 13, which is the typical age where you start to really feel the pressure of God's law... <clears throat> God's law was never my pleasure. The the God's instructions, God's word was never something I truly enjoyed. It was something I enjoyed as a means to an end. I enjoyed it to the end of being praised, being thought well of, being my parents thinking, "Oh, Chad's just such a good little boy," and uh and people thought well of me. So um when you sort of Hit high school, God's word starts to become a real burden. And you start to, I started looking for an excuse. Looking back on it, I see what I was doing now, but I didn't know it then. But I started looking for an excuse an excuse to not have to obey God's word, an excuse to not have to be under the weight of this law, and all these new desires, new urges, new things coming up. Uh, start to conflict, right? They conflict. God is saying in His Word, don't do this, don't do that, be this, be that, and everything inside of me is saying, all of that is death, all of that is constraining. And so, I began to get very angry, like God is unjust. This is not a just God that would give me, that would create me in such a way that I would have these desires, that I would have, that I would want to do these rebellious, awful things and would tell me not to. That's a conflict, right? I felt that tension and that conflict. And so I looked for an excuse and I found it in a pastor, in our pastor, uh, when one Sunday, me being perfect little Pharisee Bible scholar uh, at the age of 13, the pastor gets up one Sunday and it was a typically country church, a little bit charismatic and he gets up and he says, this morning we're going to do a wave offering to the Lord. So everybody take your money out before you put it in he's kind of guilting people into putting more money into the plate. And so he says, take your money out and wave it above your head before you put it in the plate, you know. And I told my dad, I leaned over to him and I said, Jesus said don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing when you give. And my dad said, shut up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and rightly so because I was mis- I was I mean, yes, it was not a good thing to do But he my dad always kind of saw through what I was trying to do And but that began this Trail of all right I am old enough and big enough that if you're going to take me to church, you're going to have to force me and so I said, I'm not going to church anymore. It's all hypocrisy. I'm done with it So I went from being like this little legalist to being an antinomian if you, you know follow those terms anti-law I was all about the law because it, people praised me for it uh, But when it really push came to shove I wanted to be free from it so I One Sunday, I think it may have been even been the next Sunday Uh, my dad says, all right, time to get ready for church. And I just laid on the floor. And I said, I'm not getting ready. You're going to have, you're not going, I'm not going. And my dad literally gets under my shoulders and drags me out and gets my older brother says, get under his legs. And they carry me out and put me in the back of the car. Now there weren't seatbelts back then. So you just kind of chucked me in the back. And we rode to church. Now, he was a little too embarrassed to uh, actually drag me into the church, but I did sit in the back of the car, the entire church service. And so then he adopted a different tact, a more patient tact, kind of what God did with the, uh, what, what the father does with the son who says, give me my inheritance, and he wants to take off. He says, all right, I'll be patient. And so he let me rebel, and he let me go and started just being really faithful and praying for me. So for the four years, I worked at a machine shop. My dad was a machinist. I'd worked there since I was small, and he ran this machine shop. And for four years, I worked there during the summers and after school. And in my senior year, after four years of nice, solid rebellion against everything I knew about God, I'm working at this machine shop. And there's a youth pastor that works there. And this youth pastor uh, ran a machine. I don't know how much you know about machining. But you have to be pretty attentive, but they had invented these new machines that ran, and they were controlled by computers. And so this youth pastor who worked there part-time, and he worked there full-time, but he was a youth pastor part-time, uh, was, he ran the computer-controlled machine, which meant that he could push go and leave. He could set up his, his, his block to get cut, his block of steel, Push go. And if the program was good, he could just walk away, which meant that every time I heard that machine were up, I knew 30 seconds later he was going to be in my hip pocket and have a captive audience because I can't leave my machine. I'm stuck there. I'm at a drill press. I'm at the mill and he's over here trying to talk to me about Jesus every day for about six months, every day, 10 times a day he's coming over and he's just uh, hitting me with Jesus hitting me with the gospel. And I was reading Green Eggs and Ham with my daughter a couple of weeks ago, and I realized my testimony is like Green Eggs and Ham. <laughs> because this youth pastor, Jody, he was like Sam I am, you know, and he, he would come over and he would go, would you like Jesus with a fox? Would you try him on a box? <laughs> you know, would you, would you, on a train? Would you, would you, in the rain? Try Jesus, try him, you'll like him. <laughs> And, and for six months, this was the, and I'm like, no, I don't want, I don't like Jesus. I've tried him before. I don't, I don't like him, Sam I am, let me be. And he would not. So uh, my, the, the annoyance that he was to me, became, I, I didn't try to hide it. I was very rude. And uh, about six months in of him just sharing the gospel with me 10 times a day, And seeing that I was just getting more and more annoyed, he said to me, all right, listen. He's been able to get a lot of answers out of me about certain things. He says, I've heard you complain about the church a whole lot and about God's people, but what do you think about Jesus? And I said, honestly, I try not to, and you're making that really hard. And he goes, okay, well, how about this? This was kind of his Hail Mary. He says, why don't you go home tonight when you get off shift and read the Gospel of John. He says, you want to get rid of me? You go home tonight and you read the Gospel of John and come, back and come back to tell me tomorrow what you think of Jesus and I'll leave you alone. And I was like, yes, here's my chance to get this guy off my back. And so I go home and start reading the Gospel of John out of spite and in an attempt to get this annoying person to leave me alone. And I got to chapter two In John chapter 2, verse 13, starting in verse 13, Jesus does something that blew me away. It wasn't like I was unfamiliar with these stories. Grew up on the Bible. But finally, this hit me that night. John chapter 2, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken forty-six years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So like I said, the burden of God's word in conflict with my own internal desires turned me into an angry person. It seemed unjust. Everything seemed unjust and every se- everything seemed like an unjust annoyance. And so I went around angry all the time. And when I sat down that night and I saw Jesus... I saw him furiously angry at real injustice, at these tradesmen in the temple trying to keep people. They were there. Their whole purpose in the temple courts was to make access to God easier. So if you lived far away and you had to come to Jerusalem for a feast or a festival, you couldn't couldn't lead your whole flock of sheep hundred miles to Jerusalem. (laughs) You know, it's it's a five, six day journey. It's a week long journey to get there and you can't lead your flock. And so God made allowance for that. He said, when I put my name on this particular place and you have to come together for festivals, sell some sheep where you're coming from and take money in your hand. You can carry money. You can change your sheep for money and you can come down to Jerusalem and there will be a place where you can buy animals. And you can take that money and turn it back into sheep, and then you can do the sacrifice, and you can participate in worship. And so these people were meant to be there to make worshiping God easier for people that lived far away. But they have turned, they've moved into the temple courts. They're supposed to be outside the temple. They're trampling the temple courts. They've moved into the courts where worship is supposed to be happening. And, and and instead of the sound of silent contemplative worship, the trumpets, the singing, the chanting of the Psalms, those things that are supposed to lead people into worship, all he hears in the temple courts are the bleeding of sheep. And, the, and, the, and, the, and the, it sounds more like the bazaar. It sounds like people trading. And hey, 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 I got the best deal on sheep over here. Look at this. Sheep, it's only missing two eyes. You know, you know, come on, buy this sheep from me. There, there's all this trading going on. And it infuriates Jesus. He's angry. But this was the phrase in verse 15 that broke my heart. And making a whip of cords. So here Jesus walks in, sees something that makes him incredibly furious. Incredible anger, but he takes the time to make a whip. I just imagined, I saw in my mind that you know the, the Jesus going in, burning with anger, and then turning around and walking down to where the trade is supposed to happen, to the nearest leather stall, and saying, "Oh, hey, um, I need about six strips of leather, about yay long. Do you got you got anything like that? Oh yeah, over here. Hey, Judas." Um, Give me some money. We got to buy some leather, and you know he's he's buying it, and he and he's walking back to the temple. And now I just see him. He's perfectly under control. This furious anger and perfect control combined in one man. And I said, I'm out of control. I'm furiously angry, but it's burning me up. I know it's killing me. I know it's wearing me down. I know that, that, that it's destroying me. I'm, it's, it's controlling me. I'm being controlled by my anger. I'm not in control of it. Lord, I said, if you, if you can create in me this kind of control, if you can show me how not to be controlled by my emotions, but to be in control of them and then to use them for God's glory, because he then gets back to the temple. And what does he do? He resumes his anger. He sets it aside for a moment, makes the whip, then picks it back up like, it, like, it, like nothing happened and starts hurling people out of the temple and throwing over tables and cleansing the temple. Or I say, I prefer to say cursing the temple now because he didn't really cleanse it. He, he was showing that it needed to be destroyed and, re, and, and the whole worship system was going to be reoriented around himself. And so they remembered, and this word is in here, his disciples, chapter, verse 17, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for his house will consume him. You see, my anger for myself was consuming me but i saw in jesus a man being consumed by zeal not anger i saw this other thing there's there's this pure purified form of anger that is God's passionate desire to see His people cleansed and brought near to Him that was there, present in Jesus. And I wanted it. I wanted to be a part. And as I read through the rest of the gospel, I said, if you can give me this kind of control, if you can do this in me, if you can change me, then I am yours. And as I read through the rest of the gospel and I saw in the cross... How Jesus was literally consumed by his zeal to build his house, to build his people. On the cross, he was his zeal for his house, for his people, to set a people apart for himself, consumed him, and he burned under the wrath of God on the cross. But it didn't end there. He was raised from the dead. He rebuilt that temple and built this new temple three days later. And I said, you are the Lord. I am yours. I was on my face. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and I was in at the end of John's gospel. And when I, re- I remember, when he's talking to Peter, I was like, I'm the one who's denied you, Lord. I've denied you and denied you and denied you. And I kept hearing him say, do you love me? Do you love me now, now that you've seen me, now that you see who I am? Now that you've got your eyes off these excuses and this nonsense, and you fixed your eyes on me, do you love me? And I found myself saying, of course, Lord, I love you. And He's saying back to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. So it was also, this was my conversion. It was my real legitimate moment of regeneration, I think. And it also was the beginning of a call to ministry. And I came back to the machine shop the next day. And I go up to Jody and I say, all right, I'm following Jesus now. What do I do? And he just had this grin on his face like he knew exactly what was going to happen the whole time. I, I, I've talked to, him, talked to him about it since. And he was like, oh, it was a total Hail Mary. I didn't know what else to do with it. But the Lord is very gracious uh, when we come to the end of our own ability and trust that his Word's going to make a change. Um, and so... I went on to Bible college um, because I fell in love with Jesus through this book, and I needed to know it. And you know, before God's word was a burden to me, God's commands were a burden to me. But all of a sudden, these same commands, this same book, the same things became my delight, and I wanted nothing more than to know God's word and to be an expert at it. I was like, "This is what my life has got to be all about." So I went to Bible College, um, quickly ran out of money because college is expensive and when you are the son of a machinist and you're the first person in your family to go to college, it's not like there was a college fund. Mm -hmm. And so I joined the Air Force and became a firefighter in the Air National Guard, did that for six years and got married in that time to my lovely wife, Carrie. We were introduced by a mutual friend. I had one year left in high school after I became a believer, and I started just preaching the gospel all throughout the school. So quickly, I did not have any friends. I was I was I was a I was a pretty popular kid. I was the des- I didn't drink I didn't like drinking a lot and things like that. Uh, so I was like the designated driver as soon as I got my permit. And so I was like I get to hang out with all kinds of people and be uh, at every party. And so I was I was pretty popular. But as soon as I started trying to leverage those relationships for the gospel and try to annoy people into the kingdom like I was annoyed in, uh, I was quickly abandoned by all all my I, was quick, I quickly had no friends. There was one. I had driven three or four people uh, home a few weeks earlier uh, from a party. They were so drunk, I had to like carry them and throw them in the back of the vehicle. And um, the Fellowship of Christian Athletes had like a prayer circle kind of thing in the cafeteria. And the four people leading it were drunk in the back of my van, you know, the <laughs> my parents' van, the, the, a couple of weekends before. And so, uh, I got up in the cafeteria and I and I I said, I said you guys are being hypocritical. You gotta actually believe the gospel. Like I, I was I was trying to tell them, woe to you! Look, Jesus says you you know you you can't live these two lives. You're you're whitewashed tombs. You're trying to look really nice on the outside, but I know what you're you're rotting inside. Come on, believe the guy. And the circle kind of quickly started to disperse. And. And so I'm standing in the middle of the cafeteria and a teacher comes over and he goes, hey, hey, okay, thank you, thank you. Uh, and I said, oh, all right. So I went and sat down at the table I was at, which is now vacated, and a guy came from across the cafeteria named Derek Sanders, and he came over and sat next to me and he said, uh, I like the cut of your jib, you know, and then, and so we struck up a friendship and he went to college with my wife while I was in college in South Carolina and he introduced me to her. And so I like to say my only friend in the world gave me my great, you know, introduced me to my wife. And, you know, that relationship was such a blessing to me because of that, because of what I gained from it. But went to Bible college um, and then I started the fire department. We were there for 10 years at the Columbia, at the city of Columbia fire department. Uh, uh left as a captain when an opportunity to plant a church in Nashville came up. Um, and so we'd worked with church plants. I've been preaching and teaching for those years. And um, so we moved back to Nashville, um, worked at a church there for two years, and then I became Presbyterian. In that time, the church plant we were working at was planted by a former PCA guy. And so I one of, one of the things I was tasked with in my time there was hey, why don't you teach the baptism class? I'm like, oh, great. I I think he had ulterior motives. People do that all the time. Uh, And so I started teaching the baptism class and I realized, oh, I think I'm an infant Baptist. I think I'm a paedo, I think we need to baptize the kids. And so I spent a year kind of studying, preparing, doing all that. And then we did the most expensive baptism that's ever happened in the history of the PCA because, or, or the Presbyterian church because now to make a career in ministry, I've got to go to seminary, you know, I've got to get a master's degree. <laughs> and so I, it's the most expensive baptism ever. Totally worth it. And so we, God gave us an opportunity to go up to Westminster and we spent the last four years there. And then through that, um, finishing that MDiv in May, we've got an opportunity to come here and do the internship here. Um, so that's, that's the life story. That's me and a little bit about what we're going to be talking about. What I learned and what began to be a sort of side field of study for me throughout my whole time with the Bible is, what's the deal with emotions? <laughs> they seem to be this thing that's very important biblically, but I'm not seeing anybody talking about them. I'm not hearing people talking about, uh, about how am I supposed to handle the emotional reality, the emotional side of me. In the Bible, we have three capacities, biblically speaking. You, can do, you have three things, three uh, ways that you connect to the world and connect to God. You have your mind, the way you think. You have your emotions, what you feel, and that's like your experience of things. And then you have your actions, your will. And those are the three things that make up what the Bible calls your heart. So the essence of you is not just your mind. It's not just your thinking. It's not just your actions, but it involves your emotions. That's one-third of what the Bible says is you, and how much time do we dedicate to thinking about and, and studying on and figuring out, how do I live with this? How do I, how do I love God with my emotions? and not just let them rule me, because emotions are want to rule you more than any other, of any other part. And we'll talk about why that is. And a lot of people will talk about it like this. They'll go, you need to have balance between your thinking and between your actions and between your emotions. That's the wrong way to think about it. Balance is not right. It's not balance between the two. You need to have a right relationship between those three things. Emotions were designed by God for three things. To connect us to Him and to one another. To motivate right actions. And to reveal the deepest loves of our hearts. To reveal idolatry and things that we love more than God. It's a revelatory. Emotions are supposed to be revelatory of our internal uh, uh, drives. They're supposed to motivate us for right action and they're supposed to connect us to God and to one another. And if we don't have them, if we don't have a, if they're not in right relationship to our mind and to our actions, then we are missing out on one third of what God has for us, and one third of the whole of what how you're designed to operate in the world. And so I've spent a lot of time, it's kind of been my uh, side, like I said, side study um, has from, from the time I became a Christian, 22 years ago, and so this study that we're going to be doing is kind of the the fruit of a lot of that study and investigation of what God has to say about emotions. Um, so that's me. That's who I am. That's who we are. We have three daughters, eight, six, and two. Kyra, Alette, and Sophia. And uh, we're really happy to be here and to be uh, teaching the class. Um, got any questions about things coming up or, or things like that that I can get since there's a probably a few more minutes before the bell? So I have a question for you. Do you like the word regulate when it comes to emotions? Regulate's good. Right. Uh, when talking about the emotions themselves, I think there's a... <coughs> So we make two errors with regard to emotions. We either suppress them or deny them. Go, I'm angry. And instead of going, turning to God and going, I'm angry, <laughs> we go, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. I'm just frustrated. I'm, I'm not angry. I'm just, uh, I'm just upset. That's just lying. That's just denying the truth. Those are just lessening what's actually going on. Being angry isn't sin. Being happy isn't sin. Being sad isn't sin. Having an emotional reaction to something is not sin. It's, is the emotional reaction I'm having appropriate to the thing that's going on? So it's like this. Um, One of my favorite illustrations is, there's a story where there was a mountain lion on a lady's roof. (coughs) She didn't know it was a mountain lion. Her kids were playing in the front yard. And they came in, two little girls come into their mom and they say, mommy, there's a kitty on the roof. She goes, oh, okay, well, whatever. that's fine. Go and play. And so they come back in a couple more times and say, Mommy, there's a kitty on the roof. And she goes, you know, she's, she's like, well, I better go out and investigate this. I'll go out and see. They, they're pretty insistent upon telling me about this kitty. And she goes out, and there's a mountain lion on her roof. Now, the child has what emotional reaction to seeing this kitty? Joy. Joy. Whoa, look at this big cat. That's cool. I love kitties, and there's a really big one. <laughs> Now is that the right emotional reaction to encountering a mountain lion? No, (laughs) the right emotional reaction to encountering a mountain lion is the one the mother had everybody get inside right now (laughs) And dragging them into the house and calling like animal control and and uh, getting this thing taken care of the uh, So the whole you see how the, the emotional reaction of fear on the mother's part motivated her to, pr- to protect her children. Now, the emotional reaction of joy, had the, cat, had the mountain lion not been on the roof and maybe down with them, would have destroyed the children. So joy, in that instance, would have been bad. <laughs> and fear would be good. So emotions themselves are not good or bad. And so, that's, and, and so we either stuff them down and deny them because we think, oh, this is bad, this is bad. We know I shouldn't feel this way. But that's not the way to handle them. That's not how God prescribes. And that's one thing we're going to be looking at as the book of Psalms a lot because that's where we get the uh, biblical prescription for how to handle emotions. And then uh, the other thing we do is we just vent them. We just go, I'm angry, so I'm going to break stuff. Or um, you know, we just let it all out. And that's how our culture today really loves the venting side instead of the suppressing side. Chad, okay. um, in your study, I in scriptures, but you've a lot from Jonathan Edwards and his trees. And yeah. Uh, religious, affections. religious affections. And, and so what, what Jonathan Edwards is talking about in religious affections is the importance of emotions in our worship of God. That it's not... Um, he, the There's a lot of what he's talking about is... That revelatory aspect is a lot of what he gets into of our emotions they're meant, they show us what we really love so if i'm If I read some command in the Bible that I know i'm not obeying and I feel sad that i'm not obeying that command and sad because of the loss that i'm going to let's say the Bible says tithe or whatever let's just pick one that everybody's sad about um, you know. At some point or another, you've been sad to write that check. Like at some point or another, you have sat there and thought this money could go and, and save me. This money could do whatever. And you, and you wrote it and it wasn't out of joy and whatever, but you did it out of obedience and that's good. But, you know, you see that command and, it, you, and you go, what am I loving more that's making me sad? What am I afraid of losing by offering this to God and trusting Him. I'm afraid of losing something by trusting God. <laughs> and so we grieve over having to trust Him sometimes, things like that. And so, yeah. Um, can you expound a little bit on the part where Jesus was cursing the temple and oh, yeah. saying that, I guess you were saying He was gonna be eliminating the sacrifice system, or I wasn't sure. That yeah, was. yeah, so like a lot of people call those passages, and if you see it in your Bible, uh, you'll see. Um, If you've got a Bible with headings, it'll say something like Jesus cleanses the temple. Well, in the parallel passages in the Gospels, what does he do right in Mark? Before he goes in to the temple to uh, throw out the money changers, he he goes to a fig tree on a hill. There's no figs. There's no fruit. And he goes, cursed are you, fig tree, cursing this fig tree. Never bear fruit again. They come back the next day and the fig tree is dead. Well, they come the next, so he curses the fig tree and then he goes in. Mark does this thing where he sandwiches little uh, things. He'll put, he'll tell a little story and then he'll put a big story in the middle, the meat. You know, he's got the bread and then the meat and then another piece of bread. Mark and sandwich is what fun people call it when they're cinema. Um, And the meat in the middle is the, is, getting rid of the money changers. So, he curses the fig tree. He goes in, throws the money changers out of the temple. Then, they go back and they see that the fig tree is dead. What's that supposed to tell us? It's Supposed to tell us that he's not cleansing the temple. He's not preparing it for use. Cleansing something means you're preparing it for use. You know, why do you wash your dishes? So, you can use them again. He's not cleansing the temple to prepare it for use. He's cursing it because he's going to give the worship of God to other vine dressers. He's going to give the kingdom to the nations. He's going to give, he's, He's. He's. worship is no, this is no longer going to be the central place of worship. The central place of worship is now going to be me. This place is under the curse. Uh, yeah, so that's, I, I like, I prefer to call it the cursing of the temple, I suppose, that's fantastic, I've never heard that before, so I yeah. really appreciate that. Yeah. You made the comment that uh, you came to where you enjoyed the commands and didn't see them as burdensome. Yeah. Uh, when was that in comparison to the time you walked into the work and told the guy you were committing your life to? Work? Yeah, I would say some of them, m- many of the can- commands is more gradual, <laughs> Um but I, when he started when I sat down and said what do I need to do? Looking back now I recognize that was already me delighting in the commands because I'm saying what do I need to do? What are the good boundaries? That are going to keep me alive as a Christian. What are the where's the fence? I, I came to see the law. I think almost immediately as uh, you know, if, if you had a house on a cliff and you let your kids out in the backyard to play. There's no fence, and you're just on a sheer cliff, a drop off on the back of. Where are your kids going to play? Like right up next to the house. We got three feet away. This is where we're going. There's a sheer cliff over there. You know. Now, if you got boys, maybe they play a little closer to the cliff. It's not good for them to do so. But put up a fence. You put up a fence, and what happens? Now the whole field is a playground. Now the whole, you can go hurl, if it's a good enough fence, go hurl yourself up against it. You can climb on it. You can play. You, the whole thing is open to you because now you have this fence. The fence gives freedom. And I would say it was almost, almost instant, almost within the, the days following, I began to have this experience of God's commands as this is the way of freedom. This is what James calls the perfect law of liberty. This is how you live as a free person. And you know, all the stories start to come back together after Israel's delivered uh, through the waters, they're given the law. Why? Because God is saying, this is how you can live as free people. And you can continue to be free if you live like this, you'll be free forever. Your freedom will grow and increase, and you'll, you'll give freedom to other people. And now they didn't, so they ended up back in slavery and exile. Yeah. The Scripture uh, tells us how to use our emotions, and, yeah. and we read the Scripture, and we understand but during the time that you became rebellious you were reading the scriptures so what is behind it yeah so i think behind it was a was a heart w- what are the scriptures to me they were the scriptures are always they're a means to an end they're not necessarily an end, they're not an end in themselves But my end, my purpose for reading, studying, was to be praised by people. But after falling in love with Jesus, they became the means by which I got to spend time with my beloved. Uh, And so the scriptures took on new life. um, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia, it's, the Scriptures ceased to be a wardrobe and they became a portal to another world where there was adventure and high beauty and, and all of that. And all of that was because of the new heart that God gives. To have new ha- a new heart, new eyes, a new relationship. That's the, that's the essence of the new heart that God gives in Jeremiah is that you're going to have a new relationship with my law. Have a new relationship with my Word when I give you a new heart um, and put my put new loves within you. And so, does that answer the question? Is that kind of hitting around at it, or yeah, it kind of sounds like behind the the Pharisees were reading the Scriptures too. Yeah, but there is a the Holy Spirit has to change our hearts, and we have to see in John chapter eight. And I'll wrap up with this. In John chapter 8, Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you will find life. You think that the Scriptures are a means to life, but you're missing the point because you don't see that they're about me and I am life. Where you're going to find life is in Jesus Christ alone. And when you search the Scriptures with that in mind, satisfy me this morning with your steadfast love as I see it revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. You know, Paul gets at that. He's like, when, you op- when we open Moses now, what do we see? The light of the glory of the face of Jesus Christ. That's what we see when we open Moses now. So it doesn't kill us, it gives us life. And so the central thing is like, are we there hunting for him? And when, we, when, the, when, we're, when we're hunting for him, we'll actually find life because he is life. Let me pray for us some more. Father, I thank you for your word, and I ask that you would bless the rest of our morning as we turn and worship you, uh, as we lift up our praise to you, as we spend this great day of rest, the Sabbath that you've given us, uh, in all the things that uh, cause us to enjoy and, 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 and glorify you. I pray these things through Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you, together with the Holy Spirit, one God, forever praised. Amen.